Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet and are edifying. I'm Doug Keck. I kind of am the gatekeeper here coming to you from EWTN Studios in Irondale, Alabama, the heart of the mothership where Mother Angelica herself began it all back in 81. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, themagiscenter.com, crediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com as well. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN On Demand page and our EWTN YouTube channel where we have tens of thousands of hours of programming. Just posted on our On Demand page is the Worldwide Children's Holy Hour. People loved it. It's available also as a DVD purchased through EWTN's religious catalog. Join children throughout the world as they pray for peace, led by our own Father Joseph Mary Wolf from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here in Irondale, Alabama. Get the DVD again at EWTNRC.com while you're picking up Father Spitzer's book. And of course, our title today is Satan Uses a Culture for Large-Scale Temptation. Boy, do we know it now. Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives yeah. is the book I mentioned. I'm assuming you have it. You're probably going through the second version of it as it is, but he's got a new book coming out, and we're going to be excited to talk about that because we did an interview while we were out at the family celebration. But the book of the month for October, Catechism of the Spiritual Life by Robert Cardinal Seurat. Now, he is a very important man in the church. This is a very important work. We're very excited here at EWTM Publishing to be able to publish that book. We're also excited to join our great friend, Father Spitzer, once again, and ask him to lead us in prayer. Will you, Father? In the, you bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's great to see you, Father, and hear your, your voice again. And uh, we, we, we had a great time <laughs> at the family celebration. A few thousand people showed up in Phoenix. We had our radio conference, and you, you spoke bet. there. And then also at our, our wonderful uh, event, our family celebration, uh, the live show we did as a Father Spitzer show, which just aired. And uh, also, yeah. of course, uh, we did do a book interview uh, on your book that's uh, out and that uh, we're going to make available, I think, coming soon in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, a defense of her controversial moral teachings, should be available on November the 1st. And uh, hopefully, uh, as it comes out, uh, um, it'll give some really good uh, arguments for why right. all of the church's so-called controversial moral teachings are right on the marker uh, to produce emotional health, spiritual health, and relational health, marital health in our culture. Right, and check out EWTN. We'll, we'll give you some more information as we go along when the interview I got to do with Father will be 
airing, and I'm sure we'll be dealing with that book on this show as well in probably in the new year. Uh, speaking of the teachings of the Catholic Church and Catholics who seem to ignore them, uh, recently <laughs> uh, we, we had a statement that came out from uh, the, our president, uh, Joe Biden, who again represents mm -hmm. himself as a, a Catholic. He said, if you give me two mm -hmm. more senators in the United States Senate, I promise you, I promise you we will codify Roe and once again make Roe the law of the land. So that is what he is promising. And uh, Brian Birch, this is from an article that the Catholic Vote put out, uh, mentioned that Catholics are appalled by the unprecedented abortion extremism pursued by the nation's second Catholic president. Because we're talking about no limits here. It's, it's amazing. While Americans oh, yeah. struggle with record inflation, the president has nothing to offer but a pledge to expand the right to violently destroy innocent, unborn children. They've, they've decided, I hate to say it, that politically this is the one talking point that they seem to score well with, and they're pushing it. But they won't even give examples of when you couldn't have one. They basically are saying it's, it's up, to the, yeah. up to birth. Yeah, no, that's right. And the fact that they don't have any restrictions whatsoever. I mean, what we're talking about are perfectly viable children um, at uh, uh, three uh, or at least uh, six months into uh, uh, the pregnancy. Uh, these, these children are viable completely. I mean, there's no excuse. I mean, it is, in my opinion, uh, murder of, of, a, of a viable child uh, if, you, uh, if you abort a third, uh, um, a third trimester uh, a fetus. And the, the, the key thing is even in the second trimester, uh, it is also, um, you know, partially viable mm -hmm. uh, without uh, any kind of artificial means. So I, I think this is inexcusable. Uh, the fact that I, I haven't heard one single pro-abortion politician, not one, indicate any restrictions at all. So there's no limits mm -hmm. uh, to what these people are expecting. They want to just uh, keep doing this. Uh, uh, can you imagine, uh, you know, taking a child who is like one uh, minute away from being born and saying, well, that person, that human being's in the womb. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and abort that child. I mean, it, it is so grotesque just on the level of pure imagery, let alone science, let alone medicine, let alone the human of the law. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is ridiculous. And of course, the fact that uh, Joe Biden is, uh, uh, President Biden is, is uh, uh, doubling down on this, uh, it really, it just amazes me no end. And, and I think uh, it's not only appalling because he's a Catholic, it's appalling because he's a human being. Right. I, I, I do not get it. And I don't get any of these people who are saying third trimester abortions are, are perfectly okay. I mean, um, I don't think any abortion's okay. Right. But I mean, if you need visual imagery of why it's not okay, it's certainly there, uh, you know, in the third trimester. My gosh, I, I, you know, who can, who can possibly sustain this in their conscience? Um, anyway, but uh, uh, apparently to, there are some who can. Right, well, you either don't have yeah. a conscience or you, you've so dulled it down that it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, Speaking I mean, of... Varied over by political rhetoric. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, since you mentioned imagery, uh, there's an article, the Register put it out, but it's a story that came out. The mm -hmm. movie Blonde, there was a movie made about Marilyn Monroe that's, uh, you know, yeah. uh -huh. uh, that's out, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's on Netflix or something. 
But in it, uh, the film mm -hmm. angers Planned Parenthood by showing humanity of Marilyn Bo uh, Monroe's unborn child. Apparently, and I haven't seen the yeah. movie, so I'm just recounting what it says here. Uh, Monroe is depicted of being forced to undergo two illegal abortions, which leave her with lasting emotional scars. One scene in particular finds her about to have her second abortion, interacting with a vision of her unborn baby. The baby, baby asks her, you won't hurt me this time, will you? Okay. And the yeah. betrayal of abortion apparently broke all the rules for, for Hollywood. Uh, because they weren't supposed yeah. to show a fully CGI image of a baby, wasn't give, supposed to give the baby an actual voice, wasn't supposed to feature a woman who was permanently haunted by these procedures. Planned Parenthood uh, mm -hmm. certainly felt that that was inappropriate and indicated it's a shame that the creators of Blonde chose to contribute to anti-abortion propaganda and stigmatize people's health care decisions instead. So when the images are there and the truth is there, they have to deny it. Another instance of euphemistic sophistry. I mean, are you going to call this a health care decision? I mean, uh, basically, they wanted her to kill her child. She recognized that it was her child. She didn't want to do it. She was being coerced into doing it. And this was uh, obviously a very factual part of her life. It wasn't just dreamt up by the producers of the show or the screenwriters. It was a very factual part of her life uh, that it haunted Post-abortion syndrome is mm. definitely, a, a, you know, a factual um, a syndrome. It, it, it affects 81% of women who um, who have abortion have much higher rates mm. uh, of difficulties with emotional health. Uh, four times the increase of suicides, uh, two and a half times the increase of uh, suicidal contemplation, and uh, uh, 1.5 times the increase in substance abuse, 1.4 times. Uh, the increase in depression and anxiety. So, I mean, this is, by the way, put out by uh, a, a, um, a survey on Cambridge University's uh, uh, website uh, that was uh, done by, I think it was Priscilla Coleman, with uh, three-quarters of a million women. So it is a very good sample size. Uh, Post-abortion syndrome absolutely exists. Abortion definitely affects the emotional life of women. And this, this uh, movie truthfully characterized it and of course they're thinking that the uh, the, the right thing to do in Hollywood mm. is to euphemistically and sophistically bury this whole truth mm. over uh, mm. with a propaganda about health care uh, when in point of fact uh, not only are they killing her child and she doesn't want that child to be killed but in point of fact too she suffers from it she mm. suffers the same emotional damage that post-abortion syndrome manifests again and again in 81% of women. So the likelihood is 81% higher that women will have those emotional uh, difficulties after an abortion than women who never had an, uh, a pregnancy or never had an abortion brought their uh, their child to term. Right. So, um, uh, you know, the statistics speak for themselves. This movie, at least in this respect, is speaking truth and, um, and certainly uh, is uh, speaking truth to propagandistic power. So right. um, I, I leave it at that. Absolutely. Also, speaking of that, YouTube, uh, one of the things that's uh, popped up in the last couple of weeks is that apparently many YouTube videos produced especially by Catholic or pro-life organizations now bear an abortion disclaimer and links to an abortion page as YouTube claims the abortion is a topic prone to misinformation. Apparently, the affected videos show a context box 
with a link to abortion health information from the National Library of Medicine's Health Information Service, Medaline Plus. This includes videos featuring the Pope, uh, when, when Joe Biden met the Pope, uh, Bishop Barron, uh, many other pro-life organizations. Uh, so they're putting that on there because uh, they want to make sure that get, people get all the facts. I just wonder where, if, on the ones that are the Planned Parenthood videos, if they're putting any contextual boxes on those for the pro-life perspective. I have a feeling no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know, but it's a fair question to ask. Right. <laughs> I have a funny feeling that there might not be any there. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Another story out of uh, New York, uh, just a minor thing, but New York judge paves way for recognition of multi-person relationships. Like we didn't know we were on our way for this. Uh, New York judge opened the door to yeah. legal recognition, this is last week, of a multi-partner relationship while ruling on a housing case. The person said that uh, the legal protection of same-sex relationships should not be limited to two people. Uh, and basically, Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council said the judge is basically giving New York's blessing to polyamorous unions in this particular decision. Uh, this judge says, why then, except for the very real possibility of implicit majoritarian animus, is the limitation of two persons inserted into the definition of a family-like relationship for the purposes of receiving same-sex, same protections from eviction according to legally formalized or blood relationships? She asked, is two a code word for monogamy? So there we have the uh, stirrings of some of this, you know, polyamorous and again the thing that yeah. would never happen all the years we go through all oh, that would never happen we're never going to be talking about that none of that is on the agenda yeah. Yeah. yeah proving once again that the slippery slope is not a myth right but in point of fact actually does occur as prescribed right yeah well we, we moved yeah. as i said from a slope to the downhill with most of these it's not yeah, a slope right. anymore. It's just, it's just shoot, you know, like shoots and ladders, yeah, the exactly. old game we played when we were kids. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, that is a good image, though. So the other one I wanted to mention, one uh, to tie into the wonderful talk you gave at our radio conference, and then we talked a little bit about it at the family celebration about the Shroud mm -hmm. of Turin. I was wondering, there was a story from our Ossie Prenzer group, uh, which is our CNA group internationally, about... Uh, the first hyper-realistic body of Christ based on the Holy Shroud that's being exhibited in Spain in, in Salamanca cathedrals hosting this exhibition. The sculpture is made of latex silicone, weighs about 165 pounds, and it's, rep you know, it's designed based on the image from the shroud, and they hope in the next 20 years that they'll be able to you know, send it around the globe. I don't know if you've heard anything about that since you're interested in the Shroud. I haven't heard about it, but I think it's a great idea because mm -hmm. I think the Shroud, as um, you know, it's been uh, analyzed through a V8 digital analyzer uh, to get all of the three-dimensional information that is Im embedded in the Shroud, um, uh, you know, the, the lightness and, and the darkness of the, of the shadows and the, and the, uh, the shading uh, of the image. And it is so precise, this three-dimensional imaging, uh, you know, it, it, it also shows, by the way, imaging of, of the inside of the body, the backbone inside in relation to the flesh that's covering it. So we know that the shroud had to penetrate 
uh, into um, both the frontal and um, the dorsal part of the uh, of the body, and so it's a very very interesting um, uh, uh, thing to do. And I think yes, the, the more we can show the 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 absolute realism of what our Lord has given uh, for us in, in order to liberate us from the evil one mm -hmm. and from death and from sin, uh, the, the better off, uh, you know, it'll be. I, I think especially when people look at something like that, they're going to wonder, well, how did you get this precise image? And that just brings them right to the shroud mm -hmm. and not only to the crucifixion evidence that's on the crowd, which uh, on the shroud, which, by the way, is so remarkable. I mean, it, the shroud and, and, the, and the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, the coincidences are just absolutely remarkable. You, you couldn't, they're not really coincidences, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. only way you're ever going to explain it is if this body went through um, the same crucifixion described by the gospels. And that crucifixion, by the way, described in the gospels, many people thought there were lots of symbolic dimensions in the crucifixion portrayal. But now we find out by looking at the shroud uh, that you, you have that... Uh, that um, spear wound mm -hmm. that has the actual, um, you know, fluid and the blood and the clear fluid uh, from the pulmonary sac, right? That's all, it's embedded right there at the origin of the wound. We can see the triangular tip of a legionary spear, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so it looks really uh, very, very much like the gospel accounts are literally transcribing what actually happened to Jesus. And now we have this historical artifact. By the way, the 1988 carbon dating has been mm -hmm. completely debunked. Mm -hmm. Now we have this artifact that shows the crucifixion descriptions in the Gospels. You should take those literally. Uh, we've got now verification um, because I think the Shroud mm -hmm. of Turin is, is as authentic as they come. And the evidence for the resurrection is even more remarkable, uh, whether it be produced by ultraviolet, um, um, vacuum ultraviolet radiation uh, in the magnitude of about 6 to 8 billion watts, or whether it was produced by particle um, radiation, which came from the nuclear uh, disintegration and nuclear mm -hmm. reaction, low temperature nuclear reaction that came from the disintegration of every stable atomic nucleus in the uh, entire body, you know, uh, uh, you know, billions upon billions of them, um, you know, uh, uh, simultaneously. I mean, I mean, it speaks miracle, miracle, miracle. It speaks of light. It speaks of power. I mean, this thing is really something to see. Mm -hmm. And I think if people see the image from Spain, I think they're going to say, oh, wait a minute here, you know, how did they get this? Oh, wow, they analyzed it with a V8 digital analyzer. Oh, I, I get, there's three-dimensional wow. imaging on it. Oh, wow, that's just like an MRI. And then they begin to say, well, how did that get produced? And then they get right up into the particle radiation, ultraviolet radiation hypotheses where, you know, hey, you know, dead bodies don't normally emit a half a million searchlights worth of light energy, uh, you know, in a single flash of one... Uh, 40 billionth of a second or particle radiation where the entire body disintegrates uh, simultaneously and every atomic nucleus gives rise to these neutron fluxes and, and uh, proton deuteron fluxes uh, that are giving rise to the image, strengthening the cloth, you know, altering the c constituency of the blood so that the blood will turn bright red, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these things are the most remarkable things you've ever seen in your whole life. And they all come together around that theory of powerful radiation emitting from the body 
And uh, of course, dead bodies just don't normally do this. Right. I mean, we're talking about a real, um, uh, not only a, an indication of the resurrection, but a, a very right. miraculous one indeed. So I think it'll get people thinking. Mm. And I think that's what really matters. Well, I know you got people thinking with your, your talk at radio and, and, and your discussion <laughs> at the family celebration. So people yeah. can check that out on our on-demand page if they want to see uh, those programs and look forward to the book interview as well coming sure. up in the near future. Some questions from our, our viewers here. Dear Father Spitzer, oh, surveys, surveys have shown that many Catholics no longer believe in the real presence. Poor catechesis mm -hmm. is often blamed, but I believe changes such as reception of communion in the hands, standing for communion, ending meatless Fridays, and the bland Protestant-like appearance of many Catholic churches do not foster reverence. Should we not use more than words to teach, but also a visual such as the church's atmosphere to show the Eucharist is something really important, Joe. Uh, I, I agree totally. I think the more that we use symbol, I mean, uh, right, you know, contemporary human beings, you know, m many of us in, in, in especially modern cultures, you know, that are highly technology, technological cultures, we seem to think that we're, we're not affected by symbolism. Mm. But of course, we are affected by symbolism. We're affected so deeply by symbolism, uh, we can see all the time how, you know, our high technology, you know, that uh, we utilize on, you know, phones or smartphones mm -hmm. or on computers, all of it is meant not only to just give really vivid images, but highly symbolic and suggestive images that point beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. In the case, you know, much of the time in, in the secular culture, it points to secular thoughts and secular, uh, you know, satisfactions and secular forms of happiness. But there are other, uh, you know, ways in which Catholics have always, mm -hmm. uh, throughout the course of their existence, we were, we were the, you know, had such great art, such great architecture. Why we would want to submit to what the culture's standards are. I mean, let's build those churches high and mighty like we used to build them with the great steeples and the great arches. I have nothing against it. You know, let's put in the, the statuary into those churches. I mean, this is not like, I, you know, some sort of worship right. of images. It's just representative of, of uh, you know, the, the, the reality of Jesus' own incarnation and his, you know, giving, what's wrong with a statue of Mary? I mean, it reminds us that she was human just like us and that Jesus submitted himself uh, to be born by her, uh, you know, so that he could redeem the world and, and redeem us from the power of evil and sin and death. And so why not? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why, why would we not want to do this? Uh, we're not, you know, do, do people really believe believe that Catholics think that these images are real and that we're worshiping the mm. images? Of course not. Anybody who has any exposure to poetry, should we ban poetry about God? Mm. Because after all, uh, that could be viewed as, as a metaphor which only points to itself rather than beyond itself. Should we ban every form of art that is suggestive?
suggestive of, of God or mm -hmm. Jesus? Uh, should we ban uh, every form of architecture that's suggestive of the transcendent? Of course it points beyond itself. I mean, are people like, are, are we, have we become deaf to the importance of metaphor? Well, I'll tell you who hasn't. Mm -hmm. All the high-tech people uh, that are designing all the programs that your, your children are looking at, et cetera, uh, they, they know uh, that there are you know, two kinds of images. There are metaphorical ones, and they're mm -hmm. very lurid and, and very, you know, um, uh, you know accurate, um, uh, uh, you know, images of, of the world that we live in, and they're all meant to point symbolically to something beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, again, we need those images, definitely need those images. And they're not just suggestions. They really help our imagination to flourish, to bring, of course, Our Lady is present. She's not present in the statue. She's present there. But that statue reminds us that she is here with us now spiritually. Of course, we believe that Jesus is here present with us now. We believe that he really is bodily present in the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about the uh, Eucharistic miracles of Buenos Aires and Tixla and Sokolka before. But, I mean, these things are so utterly remarkable. You, you just can't believe it as seeing actual flesh um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, growing, living heart tissue growing out of the substance of the host. I mean, we've got electron screening for the host of Sokolka that shows that the integration is so fine, it's literally on the level of, of the, the super fine filaments that are, you know, in the, in the myocardium, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that are integrated with, the, you know, the, the structure of the host itself. And it's, you know, a few microns of separation that w we don't have any technology that could possibly produce this uh, effect of, you know, fine integration of heart uh, tissue with uh, the substance of a host. We, we just can't even prison, not, not nasty on anybody. Mm. The, the point, of course, is, is pretty clear. Uh, Jesus is trying to point to us, uh, I'm not just spiritually present, I'm bodily present, and I want uh, you to, as in, in John 6, right, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, because when you do in this host, right, you are going to become part of me, and I'm going to become part of you, and I'm going to transform you, and the more you, you know, worship you know, the, uh, me, you know, in this sacrament of my whole self, which I have given you on Calvary, the sacrifice that gave rise to an unconditional act of love, which is going to heal you, redeem you, and protect you from the evil spirit, and give you the grace to turn your life around. But, you know, of course, we want to remember all of these things, but we really do have to have uh, those portrayals of them. I think benediction is a great practice. Mm -hmm. It brings things right close. Uh, you know, when you put that host in that monstrance, that monstrance is speaking volumes right. uh, of, of what that host represents. And I'll tell you something. We, I was in New York <clears throat> last week at the Principled Entrepreneurship Conference. And in that conference, we started it off with the Eucharistic procession from one of the churches. Um, you know, it was around 51st Avenue, and I think it was, uh, um, I forget what uh, street, it, um, uh, 51st Street, and mm -hmm. I forget what avenue, but we went all the way down to St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral. So I was about a mile, I guess, or mm -hmm. a little, maybe a little less than a mile, nine-tenths of a mile. We walked down, closed down the, the streets, uh, right in the middle of New York, and with this great Eucharistic procession. When we left that church, there were 500 people in the procession. When we got to St. Patrick's, there were 1,000 people filing into that church in St. Wow. Patrick. Where did they come from? 
they saw that Eucharistic procession going down the streets of New York, and they joined in with the procession spontaneously. Mm -hmm. People were actually uh, genuflecting or kneeling as the host came by. That monstrance was a huge monstrance. These, these poor priests who were carrying it, I mean, my arms would have dropped off halfway through, but they, uh, they just carried that in its beautiful, huge monstrance, and people were just riveted to it. Right. The, the religious symbolism in the middle of that street. Yes, yes, we should have that kind of symbolism. Right. Let's reinstate Eucharistic processions. Let's bring back adoration, uh, you know, formally. I, I totally agree with all of it, right. and, and I think the monstrance is a great part of it, but I also think there's all kinds of ways of making things come alive. Uh, with um, those images, those statues, the architecture, right. everything that lends itself to the beauty of what the Catholic right. faith is known. Because what's amazing, as we know, during from from kind of the iconoclastic kind of post-Vatican II, where there was a misunderstanding yeah. of a lot of these things, is it just gets replaced with these screwy, yeah. goofy kind of other rituals that people make up, because we need rituals. And so mm -hmm. you take the yeah. ones that we've had yeah. away, and they just make up new ones. So why not use the ones that are tried yeah. and true? Yeah. Well, the, and not only tried and true, but really have galvanized the faith of people right. in the community and also galvanized the community around them, like the rosary always does that. Right. Adoration always does that. And Eucharistic processions obviously do that. I was a witness, you know, start with 500, end up with 1,000. People just spontaneously join. Right. And the idea, of course, for, the, for all of us is that... Uh, um, you know, there's the grace that gets funneled through those devotions into our individual and collective lives. Right. So I think, yes, let's leave, keep those tried and true ones going. And, and, you know, tendency is a lot of the more modern ones tend to be more secular and right. they tone down the religious uh, aspects of it. I just don't think they should. I just love it when we have, you know, the Stations of the Cross and some people say, well, that's a little bit lurid there, a little bit uh, too, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, um, you know, specific on the wounds of Christ and the so and so forth and so on. And I think the, the more specific, yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, just yeah. before we we, we got to go to the break, let me maybe you can answer this one quickly, yeah. uh, Father. Sure. What happens when a person receives Holy Communion while in the state of mortal sin? Do they not get the full benefits of the Eucharist? Does it anger God, Brian? Well, Brian, it certainly disappoints God. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of angering God, that's a whole other theological thought. Um, but it certainly disappoints God, and it certainly um, is, uh, it, you know, jeopardizing to, to your own salvation. And, and you know, the, the idea is if you are certain that you committed a mortal sin, right, that you did this sin, with um, not only uh, you know grave matter, but you you did it with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will. In other words, that you didn't have impediments to the free use of your will, and you went ahead and, and you committed that mortal sin, and then went to holy communion. Yeah, that would be a, a problematic uh, uh, thing indeed. It'd be very you know injurious to to uh, your path to salvation, and it right. should be confessed, and it should also be um, you know if you were sure. That it was a mortal sin, and that you, you know, there were, um, you know, you didn't have impediments to the free use of your will. You, 
you, you ought to confess that right, and go to confession and um, right. you know get back on the yeah. So uh, and of course yeah, well it's affect the you know the the graces of the Eucharist. Uh, the church says it does. Yes, mm -hmm. it does. Okay, so. very good. With that, we're going to take a break here with Father Spitzer and his universe. Much more ahead. Your questions in the second part of the program. Stay with us. Welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic, Satan uses the culture for a large-scale temptation. And, of course, we've been peppering Father with some of your questions. We shall continue uh, with some more questions. And it was interesting, during the break, we were talking a little bit about the impact of, the, uh, of that Eucharistic procession. And, and almost like, without sounding, you were talking the loaves and the fishes, the Pied Piper-like concept that, that yeah. having this there draws people out from the most unusual yeah, locations, was, unusual people. Yeah, I mean, it was like completely spontaneous, like a magnet. They just were drawn in, and we wound up with double the number of people by the time we got to St. Patrick's. Uh, we took off from the, the church, the Sacred Heart of Jesus mm. Church, and then uh, just went, I think it was straight down 51st, right down mm. to St. Patrick's. And it was amazing. I mean, I collected 500 along the way. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, it was like an addiction. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of unknown Catholics wandering the streets of New York, so... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, <clears throat> on a recent pro-life program, uh, I'm not sure which program this is, the host said that millions of baby girls are killed daily through abortion. Now, the World Health Organization claims there are 73 million abortions committed worldwide each year, or 200,000 abortions a day. Though not an insignificant number, it's far short of millions per day. Would our cause not be better served by presenting all the facts of abortion accurately, David? Yeah, David, I agree. Mm -hmm. um, let's stick with the statistics because the, stati the statistics are horrifying enough as right. it is. Right. So I agree, David, uh, um, you know, uh, 200,000 a day is horrifying. And, uh, you know, that amounts to, you know, the 72 million a year. It's horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and um, is, are about three quarters of them girls? Yeah, they're girls. That's horrifying. And uh, is it intentionally girls? Yes, it's mm -hmm. intentionally girls. That's horrifying. Mm -hmm. The truth is horrifying. We don't need to exaggerate it. I totally agree. And um, uh, maybe he said that, you know, sort of. Right you know, whimsically, uh, which uh, can easily happen. But you, you probably ought to stick, if you're yeah, going to talk numbers, maybe hyperbole, stick to the numbers that are verifiable. Off the cuff yeah. or maybe he was talking over yeah, a longer yeah. period of time, maybe, you know, yeah. whatever. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, like you said, uh, the yeah. facts are so much on our side if you just stick with them. Because what you don't want to do is if you exaggerate something or state something that's over the top, it allows the opponent to focus yeah. on that rather than on the main argument. Yep. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Right. Old debater's trick. Right. Yeah. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, in a recent discussion on abortion, I told a friend that life begins at conception and all the DNA is present for a new person at that time. He said that, mm -hmm. yes, the DNA is there and that an acorn has all the DNA for an oak tree, but it's not an oak tree. What are your thoughts on this, Ray? 
Well, you know, it's an oak tree in potentia is what I would say. Mm -hmm. But you see, the difference, you know, um, uh, is uh, you know, between an acorn and an oak tree uh, versus, um, you know, a, a human uh, embryo is that uh, in that human embryo, you have uh, the single-celled embryo, you have what's called a, a, a zygote, and that zygote is a very special pluripotent, actually, uh, totipotent cell. Um, and uh, and that, uh, that um, particular cell is actually going to be the origin and the unity of every other cell that will develop in that human being over the course of that human being's existence. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the DNA there. It's actually the substance which will give rise to every other cell, the substance of every other cell in that human being, and remain the unity of every other cell in that human being until the moment they die a natural death. So if you, or any kind of death. Mm -hmm. So the point is uh, very clear that there is a substantial um, uh, continuity, uh, not just a genetic one, but a substantial continuity from the moment that you have that single-celled unicellular zygote all the way until the point of death. Mm -hmm. And every other cell will be spawned by that uh, zygote, um, and it will, um, its imprint, as it were, uh, will be there, and it will provide the unity of that organism, that human being, all the way through. So my point uh, is, uh, um, yeah, you can say that, uh, um, you know, it's not a fully developed human being, but don't ever say it's not a human being. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely a human being. And that's why I, I spouted off those uh, studies before in the um, uh, worldwide study mm -hmm. um, that had about 5,700 uh, bi uh, professional biologists. Of that group, 96% said that the unicellular, the single-celled zygote, was the beginning of a new, unique human life. Mm. That's what they said. And of the American one, the U.S. one, um, it was 68% of those uh, 2,800 professional biologists surveyed um, of that, it was 68% said uh, that um, the beginning uh, of a new, unique human life was a single-celled zygote. So, uh, and I think that the reason mm -hmm. is, it, you know, is very clear. It's the same substance all the way through. It's not just a genetic code. It's the same substance. And all that is required is to have development. Now, if you use the development argument as a justification for abortion, then where are you going to stop it? How much development do you need? Do you need, in other words, do you need, um, in order for somebody to become human, if it's not at the single cell zygote, which single cell is going to be the continuity and the substance of every other cell that will ever originate in that body? If it's not there, then where are you going to draw the line at development? Uh, it's certainly not going to be at birth. Much more development to go, much more growth to go. How much uh, brain integration do you need? Uh, how much development of the frontal cortex? How much development of the cerebral cortex, how much growth? Should it be uh, just at two feet then, uh, when the child is two feet tall, then you can't uh, kill them anymore? Right. I mean, development is obviously an accidental argument. It's a red herring. It's absolutely specious. Why would you do that? And if you can't use development as, as uh, the cause celeb, as it were, as the main factor to, mm -hmm. to determine when humanity is present, then what is the factor? The factor is when the substance of the human being is there. And that's 
substance is the single-celled human zygote that will give rise to every other cell, and the genetic code that will uh, give the complete programming and the complete plan for how that cell is going to develop and multiply over the course of time. So uh, all I can tell you is uh, there's a substantial human being present, identifiable, that m the vast majority of professional biologists agree is the marker of a, a new unique human being. So your friend, it's a nice example, mm -hmm. but as they say, the analogy limps. Right. Acorns are not humans. Okay. With that said, let's move over to uh, your book, uh, How the Devil Works and uh, okay. where we were talking about some different uh, topics over the weeks. And um, you talk about something on page 249 called affective desolation. Uh, yeah. What is affective desolation? Well, affective desolation is uh, the feeling of desolation, mm -hmm. which most spiritual writers um, uh, try to separate or keep distinct from spiritual desolation, okay. which is uh, the effects of a real spiritual uh, desolation, which I'll explain in a moment. So affective desolation would be something like a feeling of darkness, emptiness, loneliness, dread, a sense of really being totally alone in the universe, having no substance, that sense of, of emptiness, a sense of dread that you know, uh, you know, you you you're, you can't even control your destiny, and of course the sense of pervasive guilt too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm inauthentic to the core, and people realize this in their own lives that their authenticity has to be restored. We need a right of forgiveness. We need confession. We need God to restore. You know, uh, you know, our innocence, as it were, uh, to us, because we are. You know, I mean, I certainly consider myself arch hypocrite. You know, I. I say things, but, you know, uh, obviously I'm no perfect human being. I'm just one of God's agents who's trying to, to do as best uh, as he can. But do I have my impatient? Oh, yes, I have my impatient moment, et cetera, et cetera. So the point I'm trying to get to is, you know, um, uh, this is a feeling, right, mm -hmm. of, of, of desolation. And oftentimes, says St. Ignatius of Loyola, that feeling of desolation does indicate real spiritual desolation. Mm -hmm. So it could indicate that you're kind of um, separating yourself from God. And as you separate yourself from God, you'll notice that you trust God less, you hope in your salvation less, and your, your ability to love becomes less and less. Your patience grows thinner, your um, forgiveness grows thinner, your aggressiveness grow, increases, et cetera, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Mm -hmm. So you, you can see real effects that come from that. So when you've got both of those things happening, so you've got a feeling of emptiness, loneliness, alienation, which is probably true. It's going to lead, you know, 75% of the time. That's going to indicate that maybe you're separating yourself from God. And when you separate yourself from God, it is going to lead to a decrease in trust, hope, and love. It is going to make it real much harder to live a good moral mm -hmm. life. So it's going to, you know, throw impediments into your moral conversion. So what's the way to, um, you know, um, now sometimes, of course, when you um, have affective desolations, it's because the devil's trying to stop you from something. And okay. that's why we need those rules for the discernment of spirits, right? So the devil right. himself is trying to make you feel desolate because he's trying 
to get you to stop a good action. Right. And, and uh, so that that's uh, another kind of desolation. Right. You, you get a feeling right. of desolation, but you're actually doing the right thing. Well, it's interesting. And in the case of the saints, right? Yeah. Because I know you talk about it. Saints, be, beware of the evil yeah. one posturing as an angel of light. And I think that's exactly what you, so yeah. many people deal with that, with trying to yeah. ascertain or discern, well, who's, you know, where am I getting this feeling from? Yeah, exactly. And that's what the real important thing is. Like I said, three quarters of the time, mm -hmm. uh, you can pretty much depend that, uh, you know, the, the feelings of uh, affective or felt desolation you know, are, are probably because you're separating yourself from God, mm -hmm. which means, you know, the evil spirit's getting an, a much better entree into your life. It's harder to live a moral life. Uh, trust, hope, and love is decreasing. You can pretty much see the effects. Mm -hmm. But one quarter, about 25% of the time, the evil, you're on your path, you're on the way to a good. Mm -hmm. um, you're trying to make an improvement. You're trying to become, uh, you know, spiritually converted. And what happens then is the devil switches his strategy, says Ignatius. And what he does is he comes posturing as an angel of light. So he says, oh, Spitzer, I see you're trying to, uh, to uh, basically improve here on these uh, seven uh, um, uh, virtues that counteract your seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. But uh, you ought to be embracing those virtues by tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I think you should be perfectly chaste tomorrow, perfectly patient tomorrow. I mean, after all, if you really mean what you say mm -hmm. about, you know, trying to grow closer to Christ, if you really mean when you tell the Lord you love him, that if you really mean it, uh, that, that love, uh, you know, authentically, well, then you, you should be on the road to perfection. I mean, God will take care of you, too. And so, of course, he then gives you a false expectation. Right. And, of course, you can feel all of a sudden as you feel yourself slipping away and going, oh, my gosh. I can't, you know, I can't do it. I mean, I, I you know, uh, I, I ha you know, had an inauthentic thought. I got impatient with so-and-so. I got this and I got that. All these things are popping into my mind and I'm getting hammered, right? And so the main thing is, you know, I begin to lose heart. And then those feelings of emptiness, alienation, loneliness can come. And then what does the devil do? He absolutely exacerbates it. He absolutely in, tries to increase it and stoke it. And the reason he does is he wants you to stop trying to be virtuous. Right. And the, his three key words that he wants you to say are, I give up. Right. That's what he wants you to do. And once you give up, you just go back and say, you know, I right. can't make any moral spiritual progress anyway. You know, I'm not, right. you know, and then you start believing his lies. You know, over the last five years, I've never made any progress anyway. Right. When, of course, you have made a lot of progress, but he's blinding you to that and he's pushing you along, trying to get you to speak out of your feelings rather than your rationality. And by the time he's finished, you know, he's got you right back, you know, to base one where you just go, I, I'm, I'm not going to try anymore because I'm not going to make any it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter anyway. Progress. So it's like falling off a diet. Matter. Well, I ate that. I shouldn't yeah. have eaten that. And so what the heck? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, yeah. you say here, if a half yeah. hour of daily prayer is good, then three hours must be better. And then you go on to say this, which I thought was really good. <laughs> you begin to think yeah. God is asking too much of me and he is not giving me the yeah. graces I need to continue this good and holy discipline. So it's not only I can't do it, yeah. but God is not giving me what I need so I can do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, we, you know, we lay it on ourselves, right? Because the devil makes a suggestion and we sucker for it, right? We believe it. So we say, okay, if one hour's good, three hours is better. Ignatius would be pulling out of his hair, of course, and going, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. If you're not ready for that, if you're not, you know, capable of doing that, you don't want to go near that, right? In other words, you got to do what God equips you to do. But what happens is if you believe the, the exaggeration of the devil, right? He's speaking to you as an angel of light. He's trying to make you, this is a very pious suggestion, who, you know, who but God would suggest that I should pr uh, pray three hours a day? Well, of course, it's the devil that's suggesting it so that you'll try it, then you'll fail bitterly at it, and then you'll feel discouraged when you fail bitterly at it. And then you'll think that God is asking too much of you. So by the time you're done, you not only give up on trying to be better morally converted, right? You're actually going to give up on God. Mm. So he's got you checkmated both ways. And, and all he had to do was convince you to do something which you were incapable of doing that you were not ready to do. And you say, well, why can't God just make you ready? Mm -hmm. Because it's part of our freedom. We have to be cooperating with God in our moral conversion. Mm -hmm. It's not that you know God can just rip out our freedom and plant in the discipline uh, to, to make us want to be virtuous. And, and to stop doing vices. And then, of course, he then restores our freedom again so that we can embrace it after he's given it to us. We have to do it every step of the way with us mm -hmm. because God's not going to stand in the way of our freedom. If we're going to be virtuous, God's going to be doing it with us, not for us. Mm -hmm. And that is what we have to remember. And so the devil wants us to overstep he wants us to get into a region that we're not quite ready for yet. And then when we overstep, we get into feelings of failure, feelings that God is asking too much, feelings that I'm not, it's not going to make any difference anyway. And I'm, you know, forget about it. You know, I, I just forget about it. Right. And so uh, that's the main objective of the evil spirit. And by the way, if you fail by sinning, then the devil gets to become the accuser, and he gets to triple down on this whole thing. So he basically, if you say, oh, I'm never going to commit this sin again, and you make it for about two weeks, and then you commit the sin, whatever it is you're trying to stop. Right. Then you commit the sin, and then you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, you know, I... How can it, and the devil is right there at your elbow going, oh, yes, you little worm. See, you're incapable of doing this. You thought you were some saintly, pious little being, and you were going to try and be like Christ. Well, you can forget about that because that's not you. You just are the wretch I've always said you were. And by the way, this is God speaking, he says to you. It's not God speaking. Of course, it's devil speaking. He says, this is God speaking. I consider you you to be a little wretch and worm that's not even worthy of the salvation which you're trying to put yourself on the path to. Who do you think you are anyway? Mm. And by the time you believe all this stuff from the evil spirit, you're so discouraged, you're just lying flat in the ground. And uh, he's got you going, and he's, he becomes a great accuser. So he's waiting for you to sin, and then he pounces with his accusations. And then, you know, he turns on you. He's been tempting you, tempting you, tempting you, tempting you. Then you do it. And then he goes, see, I told you, 
you little wretch. Right. You're just the kind of sinner I said all along. Yeah. So that's the basic way, right. that's his strategy. But if you're, get, if you're getting, you know, a little wiser in the spiritual life or you have a spiritual director who can straighten you out along the path, what your spiritual director is going to tell you is don't give up mm -hmm. on moral conversion. What you got to do is temper your expectations. Mm -hmm. Move the timetable down. God is not expecting you to be perfect overnight. He's expecting you to try as hard as you can to stay away from these sins. Mm -hmm. But he's not going to beat you up and tell you because you failed that, right? That's why we have confession, because people mm -hmm. fail. Mm -hmm. But eventually, if you keep doing it, what you're going to notice, the harder you try, then you're going to fail less and then the period of time between when you made the resolution and when you fail, it's going to um, uh, get longer and longer. So mm -hmm. you're going to, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a longer time. But you might fail. You mm -hmm. may not fail. But the point is, is give yourself the room to move. Give yourself the room for gradual improvement. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be perfect overnight. Failures can absolutely happen. And so you, you just, you know, the devil's very subtle mm -hmm. and he tempts you, you know, with things that you can rationalize. So you, you basically say, well, you know, at least I'm not doing this, but he's going to wheedle in the next best thing. And then when you you get finished overcoming that, he'll wheedle in the next best thing. But his hope is always to break you down and to take you off the path to conversion. The one thing you can never do once you become a person of the second week, once you start the path of moral conversion, don't get off of it. Mm -hmm. Go to confession. I don't care how many times you need to. I don't care how many times you fail. Keep trying because if you do, it will pay off. Mm -hmm. And eventually you will see that as you pray more, right? Because moral conversion leads to spiritual conversion, right? So as you get little improvements in your moral life, you're going to see that it becomes easier for you to pray. And as you get more prayerful, you are going to naturally, when you just say, Lord, I love you, I mean, you don't need much more in the prayer. I mean, you get even carried away with that because you really do love the Lord and you really do know his presence and you really do know his love for you. And it becomes very easy to be connected with him. And then when you are connected more deeply with him, then to sin is to like turn your back on the one you love. You don't want to do that. And so the moral conversion then becomes easier. So it's like it, you know, each thing plays to the other. The moral conversion plays to the spiritual conversion. And the, that is to say the deepening of the relationship with God in prayer and the spiritual conversion um, complements and makes easier the moral conversion where you can now decide in favor of virtue more easily uh, against vice and that's uh, the main um, part of the spiritual life and it's a journey mm -hmm. I mean there's just going to be failures there's going to be bumps in the road and there's going to be by the way times in your life when you get really 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 tired mm -hmm. right and and maybe you're just pressured and you're doing x y and z and you're busy for you know 14 hours and 16 hours a day and you've got so much stuff coming and going in your life and you can't even sleep well and then you say well now I'm sinning more and my prayer is so distracted of course you're 
prayers distracted. There's a very good reason, because you're working like a dog. Right. And of course, we're human. Things go zooming through our minds. And so, yes, and, and not only is your prayer distracted, maybe your sleep is distracted. Right. And then when you get more tired, it's, it's more difficult to control yourself when you're more Absolutely. tired. So all of these things can pile up on you. But a wise, right. if you can find somebody who's a good, wise spiritual director, the best thing is consult that person and just say, okay, uh, when I, I, you know, I got to get a downturn in my life where I can get, uh, you know, reconstitute myself. Right. Well, and, you know, you know uh, um, a famous a, uh, Green the, Bay Packers spiritual director, ex of Fordham, once said, <laughs> fatigue makes cowards of us all. <laughs> Uh, Vince Lombardi. So yeah. uh, I think yeah. it fits right in yeah, there. So with right. that, if you'd like to it give sure us your blessing, does. Father, that'd be great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of consolation send his spirit of wisdom and peace, send his spirit of patience and compassion and love into your heart so that you might pursue that path of salvation, that path of spiritual and moral conversion with great diligence and trust in his infinite mercy and love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. And of course, don't forget that Father Spitzer's books and videos are all available through our E.W. Tim Religious Catalog. Next week, we continue, this time with Consolation and Desolation. And of course, EWTN's bookmark. I had a fine interview on John Fisher and Thomas More keeping their souls while losing their heads with Judge Robert J. Conrad Jr. Very interesting interview. And a very special program, Transgender Movement, what Catholics Need to Know. Mary Hassan Rice explores this very important topic, how it affects the culture and what the church teaches. Check it out Monday, October 24th, and then Friday, October 28th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. It's not for young folks, but you should watch it. I'm Doug Keck. This has been Father Spitzer's Universe. We shall see you next time.